Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. As always, you can support the show and get months worth of bingeable content over at patreon.com backslash badaxepod. There is a link in our show notes to make that easy for you. Membership start at just $1 and you can listen to so many fun episodes that are over there. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review and by telling a friend about us. Today, we are going to be talking about a case that was new to me, but I think some of you will have heard about it because we are not the first podcast to cover it. I think pretty much every podcast has covered this, and somehow I had never heard it before, which is weird because I, as some of the podcasts that I saw covered it, I definitely listened to, so I don't know what's going on with that. However, just being honest, I needed a good ending right now, y'all. This is a survivor story, and a lot of you, I'm sure, have seen my note about my mom passing away unexpectedly on New Year's Eve. It's been very hard for me. I also had COVID at the time. Somehow, uh, I've had COVID three times, despite being vaccinated all three times. I am very unlucky, although I will say that if you've been vaccinated, Omicron is not that bad. I still wouldn't recommend getting it. I mean, a lot of people are acting like it's no big deal. It still sucked, but not nearly as much as regular COVID. Honestly, the worst part was that I couldn't go to the hospital to be with my mom and she was rushed in, which was just truly a terrifying experience. Like, it was the reverse of normal like, can't go in there because of COVID. People thought that I couldn't go because she had COVID. She actually did not have COVID. She had regular pneumonia per the hospital, but I sadly could not go because I was in the quarantine uh, until a few days afterwards, which was just ridiculous. Uh, so I am having a tough time, and so we are going to do a survivor story. Yay! Technically, there is a death, so, I mean, you have that. Um, Somebody's going to die. We're going to try to keep it a little more upbeat, though, so I don't, like, cry for part of it. There you <laughs> just, go. Just, like, the whole middle is just me crying. So we're not going to do that. We're going to do this slightly positive story, and everyone's going to have a good time, I think. I'm pretty sure. I'm excited. All right, so here's what we're doing. I did just want to say that I apologize for coming back a week late from our winter hiatus. We were only going to take a couple weeks off. Then my mom passed. She was only in her 50s. It was very unexpected. So I am just like, honestly, not a person right now. And I apologize. So please have some patience with me if I'm just not on my game right now because that's what's going on in my life. Despite this, though, I'm still hoping that 2022 will be a big year for Bad Axe Podcast. Try and keep a positive attitude. It's not every day. (laughs) But at some points... My attitude is positive, so let's try to make this happen as a group. We're going to do this. All right, now we're going on to today's case. Today we are going to Portland, Oregon. Yay! Yeah, we really like Portland. We've been there. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. I have multiple friends that live in Portland at this point. Lots of cool art stuff. 
very fun to walk the streets. No one tries to run you over. That's different from Houston. In Houston, it's kind of you take your life in your own hands. They're supposed to stop, but they don't always stop for you. And you just have to, you just have to go. But in Portland, you can just lollygag. Not that you should, but you can just walk as slow as you want. People have to stop. There's signs everywhere. Everyone just does it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, people are way more friendlier on the street over there. Here, they will literally shoot you. I'm not exaggerating. We have a reputation here in Texas for the guns, and it is not ill-founded. Like, it's definitely true. And whereas we here understand, yes, guns can be great for self-defense and whatnot. I mean, again, we were born in Texas, so, you know, it's been kind of, like, hammered into us. Car guns, bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, people are getting shot a lot over here. With the guns. And I realize now that I'm off topic, which I feel like it's not a thing that I do that much at the beginning anyway. So we're going to get back on topic. Portland, where people are nice on the streets. And that is where our case is taking place in September 2006. Portland is Oregon's largest city, uh, which makes sense because it's awesome. And it has just over 650,000 residents, which says a lot because it's the largest city, but it's still kind of small compared to a lot of other cities. It is a city with a lot of art and culture, and it's situated in the natural beauty of the Pacific Northwest. Just just a perfect, beautiful area. Yep. Really bad with crimes, but gorgeous. <laughs> gorgeous. You know, it's, I guess it's a trade-off. I don't know. Yeah. The internet service is not as good. Also, fun fact, when we were in Portland, this is the last thing I swear. I, I'm lying. That's not going to be the last thing, but it's one of the last things. There were, like, no cops. That's true. We were there for like four days and we did not see a single cop That's until right. like that like fifth day that we were in Oregon. Yeah. After a couple of days, we started to like actively pay attention to see if we could yes. even find cops because it was so eerie that we had to I hadn't know. Run we're like, one. where are the police? Maybe that's why everyone always says on these crime shows that people go up to the Pacific Northwest to commit murders because of the forest it makes it easy to to find to hide bodies. But also, if there's no police anywhere, um, it's, you can just do whatever you want, I guess. I don't know. But there you go. It's definitely, maybe it's because everyone's so nice. Maybe that's what it is. Could be. Maybe they don't even need the cops. Not that we think the cops solve problems. We're definitely in favor of restructuring the police. I'm getting a lot off topic yeah so anyway they're not like doing all the good things but in general it was kind of shocking to was, see none yeah it was a surprising it was surprising given our background yeah. and like what we're used to you know? yeah we're used to like a lot of cops over here yeah every parade it's like are you at a parade because you're being patrolled by like the SWAT team is here mm-hmm. um yeah so i mean that's what you gotta do apparently over here at oh, parade yeah. times it gets eerie, and they will yell at you if you aren't in the right spot. <laughs> I used to work for a newspaper, and I got yelled at for trying to take pictures. And I'm like, I'm with the press, and they do not care. They did not care. Mm-hmm. Um, they really did not like us. So that's what happened with that situation. Anyway, back to Portland, finally, where we are about to meet in September 2006, 51-year-old Susan Walters. Now, at that time, Susan Walters was called Susan Kuhnhausen, and we are going to learn why she no longer is called that as we learn about this case. (laughs) Susan lived alone in a southeast Portland neighborhood called Montevilla, and her cozy blue one-story house reminds you of a beach cottage transported to a city neighborhood. It's adorable. It has, like, a little fence and everything, just the cutest house. 
Susan worked as an emergency room nurse at Providence Medical Center, where she could use her talents to help others. Since she has the soul of a helper, this was a very good fit for her. That year, Susan was undergoing a bunch of changes, but it was all for the better, because after years of living with a toxic husband, she was finally ready to go through with a divorce, and she was about to start her life as a single person. And if you've been in a terrible marriage, getting out and being single is really awesome. It's a very thrilling experience. You have to do all the things that your ex was preventing you from doing. You have to spread your wings and fly. It is pretty magical. So that is what Susan is about to do. Now, she wasn't like hating her ex. They Their divorce wasn't going great. Like there was a lot of tension, but she still had a lot of love for him. She just didn't like the way that he was so negative all the time. He acted like a bully. He was really just dragging down her life. And she just reached a point where she just needed to kind of cut and run and just have both of them start their lives over again, not together. Right. In some ways, you might say that Susan had an intuition that her marriage wouldn't work out. Because for most of her life, Susan doubted marriage, partially because her own parents had divorced when she was just a child. She didn't have any healthy relationships to serve as models for her, so she didn't really seek out a husband. But her mother was determined to change her mind. In January 1988, the mother and a friend convinced Susan to let them take out a personal ad on her behalf. That's right, an old-timey personal ad yeah. in an actual newspaper. Uh, it's online dating before it was cool. I know. It's not, it's not, well, it's not even online. It's like... Paper, paper dating, (laughs) regular paper dating. So her mother and the friend put this in the Willamette Week newspaper. And this is literally what the ad stated. Someone different. That was the bold title of this ad. Single white female, 33, overweight but not over life, seeks single man who wants more out of a relationship than just slender. Active healthcare professional, enjoys exploring the Northwest, interested in conversation, good times with someone who is intelligent, thoughtful, and full of humor. Must be emotionally, fiscally mature. If you are seeking a bright, funny lady who is adventurous enough to advertise, then please reply. Nice. Yes, a very nice ad. She's putting herself out there. This is going to happen. Soon after this ad ran, Mike, who was 39 at the time, replied with a letter. Oh, a letter. Yes, a whole letter because it's olden times. There you go. It's adorable. Oh my, can you imagine having to wait for a whole letter? It would be agonizing how long you have to wait. It's bad enough waiting for someone to message you back and now you have to wait for a whole letter. I know, it would take forever. Forever. So she gets this letter and they start talking. He says that he's been married before, he has two children, but he's ready to try love again. And he thought the pair could build a happy life together. And after they talked for a long time and gone out on some dates, it turns out that Susan agreed. Now, Susan loved living a vibrant life, enjoying her time with friends and collecting all kinds of exciting experiences. And while they were dating, Mike seemed okay with that. So this told her, this is a good relationship for me. He seems like he's cool with my lifestyle. He seems like a nice guy. He's got kids already. Like this could be good. So before the year was out, the couple became engaged. They tied the knot in Reno, Nevada on December 10th, 1988, just a month shy of the day they met. 
Oh, wow. That's pretty yeah, fast. Yeah, that's pretty fast. I think that was normal back then. But I will caution you if you're listening. Don't get married that fast because otherwise you will get stuck in a relationship. It's not important how I know about this. Just you should wait longer and <laughs> get to know somebody before you marry them, especially if you are very young. Otherwise, you will end up getting divorced, and that's less fun. Yeah. It's less fun. For years, the couple settled into a happy routine, and Susan thought they'd both grown into healthier, happier adults together. Not only did they have a great partnership, but the couple also created a happy, blended family. They co-parented Mike's kids for, with the first wife, and they'd settled into what seemed like domestic bliss. I want to stress this was only for a brief period of time, though. As an ER nurse, Susan carried the household finances, and her hard work allowed the couple to have some great times with friends and family, and she liked to spend her money doing things that she wanted to do. And if you recall from earlier, she was really big about fiscal responsibility, so she's not being irresponsible. She's just using her money wisely to have a good life. Right, right yeah. Over time, Mike seemed to develop sort of a problem with that. And we're going to get back to that a little bit. Now, he wasn't exactly like a stay-at-home husband. He also brought home some bacon, which he earned as the janitorial manager at Fantasy Adult Video Store. So he does have a job, and he is bringing home money, but she is out-earning him by kind of a lot. And this seems to eventually start to rub him the wrong way, even though it doesn't sound like there was initially any problem with it. So I don't know why suddenly this becomes a problem for him. Because it seemed like life was good. But unfortunately, good things don't always last, and cracks began to form in their relationship. He starts complaining about how she's spending money. He acts like a bully. He is just really negative. She told friends and also a lot of people who interviewed her that it seemed like he had just never been happy. And he would say things like, life is a shit sandwich and you just keep taking bites until you die. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty uh, fatalistic outlook. Yeah, so super negative. And this was like all the time. Like forever, forever he's negative and also has like all these problems with their relationship. So after like 13 years of marriage, they're just definitely on a downward decline. Um, It's not, doesn't seem to be getting any better. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. Now, as I said before, Mike has started to notice that Susan spent more money than he thought necessary. And a lot of this money was spent on her doing fun activities with the people in her life, like her friends and family. And for some reason, this just rubbed him the wrong way. And he started giving her a hard time about it, even though most of the money that she that was being earned in the whole household was coming from her. So it's like, when you're married, obviously you share money, but it is she is earning the money, so she should have you know, a say in how it's spent. And this is a situation where he's trying to take control over that. Yeah, yeah. Mike also started picking apart Susan. And like, just really, a lot of people described him as being a bully. But he just expected her to accept him as he was. And that included all kinds of heavy drinking, smoking, and that bad attitude. 
Right. Apparently, he also had some kind of diet soda addiction that played into all this. Interesting. I think that was just something that started to irritate her over time because it came up and I thought, that's random. But I guess if you just had to sit with someone who was being just really negative all the time and then they were just like slugging it, you maybe you would eventually get really annoyed by that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Still, Susan wanted to work on her relationship. Which is nice. So she decided to try to get Mike to go to counseling with her. And at first he didn't want to, but she essentially told him that was necessary. Like, if you want to be with me, you are going to have to go to the counseling. So they did try that. And he did go for a while. But things really didn't improve. And as a result of that, the couple finally decided to separate in September 2005. And even though it's presented as them deciding to separate, really Susan was the main one who wanted to separate And so she essentially kicked him out of the house at that point. And he moved in with his father uh, so that he could have somewhere to live. Now, even though it was time for this relationship to start coming to an end, at that point, they've been together for 16 years. And it's just not that easy for a marriage to just fall apart when you've been together that long. Yeah. And so they continue to co-parent the kids. At that point, the kids were grown. But they were still acting as, like, parental roles to them. And also, they had grandchildren. And so, they were still trying to come together to do family activities with the kids and the grandchildren. So, they could still have happy family moments. I mean, it doesn't make sense for Susan to walk away from them after she's been in their life for so long. Especially with the grandkids. Because she would be known as their grandmother. So, it doesn't make sense for her to just, like, lose that relationship. Just because the marriage is coming to, you know, an end at this point. Yeah, totally. And so they're trying to do all these family activities together. And this made Susan realize something. Because as she's spending more and more time with Mike in this family situation, she realizes that their relationship is for sure doomed. Because she can tell from his attitude that things aren't getting better. And he also just seemed to be becoming angrier and angrier and angrier. And as she was watching him unravel, she realized that the stress of their separation was proving to be just too much for him. And it made more sense to her that they should just probably go ahead and get a divorce. Because she wasn't seeing the changes she wanted to see. And she was very unhappy. He was very unhappy. And just dragging it out longer was just going to make it worse. So by early September 2006, she had decided to finally go through with the divorce. They had celebrated 17 wedding anniversaries at that point, but that would be the last one, was that 17th. Right. So, Susan filed for divorce, but unfortunately, the road to divorce was going to be rocky because Mike still wanted to reconcile. Now, it wasn't because he just loved Susan or he just couldn't live without her. A lot of the reason why he wanted to reconcile is because he just really liked his lifestyle with Susan and he didn't want to have to go off and support himself. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's like his main reason. Of course. But unfortunately for him, you can't force someone to stay married, right? That's right. I mean, you can try, but it's not going to work. Eventually, you're going to get divorced. Exactly. Rather than getting a divorce, though, one of the Kuhnhausens decided to take their wedding bells of Till Death Do Us Part a bit too literally. Uh-oh. Uh-uh. I know. I These are some of the, the weirdest moments, right? The Till Death Do Us Part people? Like, yeah. I'll just... This is fine. This is... A way out. Look, yeah. a way out. They really should just get a divorce. Like, yeah. I mean, 
Like, murder is not better than divorce, mm-hmm. people. Like, I, I mean, know. We've said that so many times. It makes me think of that meme, though, with the cars, with the road, and the sign. And on the left side, it says the reasonable thing, like, get a divorce. And on the right side, it has something crazy, like, murder your spouse. And the car is swerving off towards the bad choice. Yeah. This is that. <laughs> Don't do it. It's bad. So that's what we're setting up here. Now, on September 6th, 2006... Susan left work to head to a nursing conference. Remember, she is an ER nurse, which is extremely challenging, even as nursing goes. Oh, yeah. However, she had a few things she had to do before she headed out of town, including stopping off at home. However, her first stop was at Perfect Look Hair Salon to get her hair done. She left the salon that day feeling pretty good and headed home to prepare for her trip. On the way, she called her soon-to-be ex-husband, Mike, because she thinks they're friends at this point, to ask him to cat-sit for her while she was at her nursing conference. For all of those with cats, we know how hard it is to get a cat-sitter, and it's very important because cats are babies, and they deserve all the love. That's right. So she calls him because he already knows the cats. He already has access to the home because she was letting him come over whenever he wanted when she was there, although he wasn't supposed to be there without her there. Right. Okay, but she was letting him come over. He had her alarm code. He had her key. And so, you know, he could just come watch the cats, right? It makes sense. But when she called him, he said that he couldn't do that because he was at the beach. And not just for the day. He was being very weird. And Susan realized something did seem kind of off about him. But she wasn't really sure what it was. And she wasn't really that preoccupied with it. Because she had this trip to get off onto. And honestly, they weren't together anymore, right? So she's just has friendly feelings towards him. She's not that invested in what he's got going on. Yeah. Cryptically, though, before they hung up, he told Susan that he'd also left her a note inside her home. Uh Uh-oh. Now, this would obviously be a red flag because why was he in there? Yep. He's not even supposed to be at the house, right? That's right. Because she wasn't there. And that was the rule. So unless she asked him to come, like with the cats, he shouldn't have been in there. But now she knows there's this note waiting for her. Susan arrived home from her shift and from the hair salon to a dark house. Inside, she found that note from her husband. It read, quote, Sue, haven't been sleeping, had to get away, went to the beach, unquote. That's weird. Yeah, so he really, really wants her to know that he's at the beach. Right, like he's trying to set up an alibi. Very important. It's just, for some reason, Aaron, it's very important that everyone know that Mike is at the beach. Yeah. I mean, just in case you were wondering. Yeah, it's like the letter is titled alibi and then the message body is... <laughs> yeah, my alibi. I am at the beach. And if you recall, this is taking place in Portland. So the closest beach is around like an hour to an hour and a half away, depending on traffic. I know because we've driven there. Next and it was, I believe it was like an hour and 19 minutes or something like that to get to the beach. That's if you go directly toward the beach. Maybe like an hour you could probably get it there in an hour. Yeah, but it's going to take you a little while. Yeah, so it's not like it's not like I'm five minutes down the road at the beach. It's I'm a whole alibi away. Exactly. At the beach. So she sees the note and she's kind of like, hmm, okay. Presumably, though, no one was home, right? She lives there by herself. Mike is off at the beach being stressed out, apparently. Uh, and could this be why the house was so dark? Could be. You know, normally she leaves the curtains open, but the curtains are closed. Very dark inside. But Susan, as it turns out, was not alone in her home. 
There was a strange man lurking nearby, and that man was holding a red and black claw hammer. Oh, shit. But Susan had no reason to worry, because after all, she has an alarm system on her home, so if someone had tried to break in, surely that would have gone off. You would think so, unless someone gave them the code. Unless R just let them inside. Yup. As Susan moved through her dark home, she came face to face with the hammer-wielding assassin, who stepped out from behind her bedroom door when she tried to go in her bedroom. Of all places, her bedroom. I know, right? This assassin wore a tan hat pulled down over his eyes. His long hair was tucked up into the hat so it wouldn't be left behind as evidence at the crime scene. On his hands, he wore yellow rubber gloves that prevented him from leaving fingerprints at the scene and also would conveniently keep blood off of his hands. His striped blue casual shirt and dockers contrasted with the menacing look in his eyes. Susan said of him, quote, We were nose to nose, and I could feel his wet, winded breath on me. He was lying in wait for me, thinking, piece of cake, middle-aged woman, overweight with two bad knees, unquote. <laughs> yeah, he grossly underestimated her. Yeah. The man started swinging the hammer, striking Susan in the face. Damn. I believe the first swing hit her left temple. Wow. He managed to land several blows to a very surprised Susan, but she was not going to go down easily. She told her attacker, quote, you are not going to kill me in my own home, unquote. <laughs> nice. I know. She's my hero. Yeah. Just my whole hero. Yeah. That's a baller ass thing to say to somebody that's trying to kill you Just in your like own house. Just like completely indignant. Like, yes, this is not happening. Yeah. Instead of panicking, she put her knowledge of self-defense into action. And she started by getting closer to her attacker. Like, your instinct is to run away. But she had learned in the past that swings, like assault swings, if someone's trying to injure you, have less momentum if you are close to the person. So it's a lot harder for them to injure you as severely. And so despite wanting to flee like, a, like every, anybody would, she made herself get close to him so it would be harder for him to actually hurt her as badly as he wanted to. She also tried to use her weight as an advantage to take him down. As she said earlier, she was overweight. And her intruder weighed less than 200 pounds and she weighed significantly more than he did. So she tried to use that to knock him down by like trying to run, ram into him and like basically overpower him with weight. Unfortunately, that did not work as well as she thought it would. He would not go down easily and instead he forced her back up against the wall of her bedroom and still had that hammer. At that point, she realized that getting him down wasn't going to be easy But she was able to do one thing in their struggle. She briefly got his hammer away. Nice. Later, Susan told interviewers that her father had always told her that a hammer made a great weapon. But the thing is, you got to use the claw part, not the flat side, like the murderer was doing. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, the claw would do a lot of damage. Exactly. It's kind of like with an axe. It's counterintuitive. If you're going to hurt someone with an axe, don't do that. But if you were, (laughs) the back of the axe, the blunt side, is a lot easier to use because you can blunt force trauma someone. Whereas if you're trying to use the blade, it's a lot less precise and there's all kinds of issues when you're trying to hack at people. It's going to get stuck and stuff. Yeah, it can get stuck. And then you're trying to pull it out. Whereas like if you're using the back side, again, don't axe murder people. But if you're going to do it, which you shouldn't, 
Um, maybe you're self-defending yourself. If you're self-defending yourself, you use the back part. You don't use the front part. So she's here looking at it like, I got to use the claw part. It's like reverse with the axes. So she swings several times and she actually did manage to strike him in the head with the claw part of the hammer and swung like two or three times before he managed to get that away from him, from her again. So he was able to quickly wrestle it back from her. So at this point, she's just grappling. Like she's trying to get this hammer. She's trying to get him down anything. And she managed to loop her arm around his neck and pull him into a chokehold. Nice. I know. Amazing. Remember, she did technically train for this. She was a nurse and they did this type of self-defense training because as an ER nurse, you're dealing with people who are coming in like already on drugs or people who are going through drug withdrawals, people who are like part of a violent crime incident already. And some people will fight you and they need to be able to know how to defend themselves and how to subdue people. And so she was able to use that training from work to get him into this chokehold. She squeezed his neck and held on until he turned purple. Nice. Yeah. And at that point, she thought he had passed out. And she's honestly really nervous. I mean, she's a nurse. She's not trying to harm someone. She just wants to survive at this point. So as soon as he turned purple, she's like, okay, he's he's out. I can get away. So she let go and she ran for the door. But unfortunately, the intruder was not conscious. And so he took off after her. And he punched Susan in the face, knocking her to the ground. Oh, shit. However, this punch actually is what took him down, too, because her momentum took him down with her. At this point, they were in Susan's hallway. So it's like right outside her bedroom. And the intruder was determined to finish the job. But, of course, Susan was not done fighting. And since she had taken those self-defense classes, she decided to just take it up to the next level. And she starts wrestling him on the floor, <laughs> trying to get dominance. I wow. know. And at, at this point, too, Susan is worried that she's going to lose this fight. Because, honestly, she's already gotten the hammer away from once. He got it back. She's tried to use her weight. You know, She knows that she's a little older. It's a struggle. And so she starts putting into place a plan that even if she does end up passing away during this that she is going to leave enough evidence for the police to find him, like, immediately. Right. So she bit him on his arm and his thigh and his torso, just hoping that her bite marks would, like, leave injuries on his body that they could use to match back to her, or at least to know that he was in, like, the fight of his life. Oh, yeah. Uh, Because at that point, even if they can't use, like, technically teeth molds are, like, junk science now, but even if they couldn't use that, just having a bunch of bite marks all over you... And, like, other injuries is a red flag. Yeah, plus you probably leave DNA behind. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, DNA. Uh-huh. So, like, you know, he's already got, like, wounds and stuff. Like, he'd be noticeable as a suspect. Yeah, he's so not she, getting away with it. Yeah, this. so she's biting <laughs> on him. And she started, like, grabbing at his pockets, too, just trying to pull stuff out. Just looking for something that she can throw underneath her furniture. Like, his wallet or anything. Like, a phone. Whatever is in there that she can throw under the furniture. So that if the police do have to investigate this crime as her murder, they'll hopefully find something that was left behind during this struggle. Like, that's her plan. When she realized that she could not get the hammer from him, though, Susan decided, in her words, in an interview... To, quote, be the weapon, which is <laughs> so badass. Like, a whole a whole mood here. So, she's going to be the weapon. And once again, she managed to wrestle around with him. She says that she put her left leg over him and was able to kind of flip on top of him. And then that's enabled her to get her arm back around his neck. 
and starts squeezing. So at this point, they're in the hallway and she's got him back in the chokehold on the floor. And she just starts squeezing and squeezing, just trying to win this. And as they're fighting, she starts demanding to know who hired him. And according to her, she said, tell me who sent you here and I will call you a fucking ambulance. Unquote. <laughs> and we watched her say that in one of her interviews. We and did, oh yeah. my God, yes. This was like, I rewound it so we could watch it again. <laughs> because I was just like, yes, girl. Yeah, that is such oh. a, it was so badass to hear. Like, like, yes. It was just, it was, yeah. It's just like to have this man go into this house thinking it'd be so easy to kill this lady. And that he's a hitman. And he has a criminal record. So this is not like his first time being a criminal. And this isn't his first time with murder either. And so for him to go in there being like, I'm going to murder this lady. And for her to just be like... Who sent you? Like, yeah, just, it's like something out of an action movie. You know I what know. I mean? It's like she's <laughs> Liam Neeson this whole time. Right. I'm just like so into this. Okay. So at once she figured out that he wasn't struggling as much. So she's thinking like, I've asked him who sent him. He's really like starting to not struggle. Like, I think I'm winning this. She's starting to kind of like let go a little bit, hoping that he would respond. Because I mean, a normal person in this situation would like be like just you know, call it right. You're like, she's going to kill him at some point if, if he doesn't like stop fighting. Right. Yeah. But in, unfortunately though, he was not ready to talk to her about this. He was not going to tell her anything. And instead, as soon as she started letting up, he started fighting again and started trying to flip her off of him so he could get back and control over the fight. Wow. So at this point, Susan realized that this was the fight of her life. Like it was kind of a him or her situation. He was never going to let up. Like if she didn't keep squeezing, he was going to kill her. So once again, she wrapped her arm tight again and started squeezing. And she just did this until he stopped fighting and he dropped the hammer. And at that point, after she could tell that he was like completely subdued and the hammer was out of his hand, she grabbed the hammer and fled out of the house with the hammer in her hand. Hey, what's up, you guys? I'm Catherine. And I'm Haley. And we are Saturdays Are for the Ghouls, a podcast on the Podmoth Network. We cover all things spooky, like horror movies, true crime, the supernatural, and spooky stories. In the most chaotic way possible. So join your favorite ghoul friends every Saturday wherever you listen to podcasts. And become a spooky babe. <laughs> so spooky babes, we'll see you in your nightmares. She ran to a neighbor's house to get help. And according to her, she told the neighbor, quote, Open the door. Call the police. I've been attacked and I think I killed a man. The neighbor called emergency services. And according to Willamette Week, here is the opening of the call. I'm going to read the neighbor's portion and Aaron will read the dispatcher's responses. We have an intruder in the house next door. The intruder was in the bedroom with a hammer. The woman who lives there thinks she may have strangled him. He was down when she left. Can you put her on the phone? She's bleeding. Does she need an ambulance? No, she's a nurse. She says call an ambulance for the guy. He may be dead. During this call, the dispatcher sent an ambulance and police officers to Susan's home. First responders rushed Susan to the hospital, which happened to be the same one where she worked. Despite her heroic outcome, though, Susan didn't exactly come out unscathed. She had some fairly serious injuries, including hammer wounds to her head, 
bruises to her face and body, and bite marks all over her arm. Because as she was strangling him, he was trying to bite at her to get her to let go. So she had those wounds as well. And there are pictures of this, and you can tell they were fairly serious. Like, she looks like she has been through something. Yeah. Like, she's really injured. Now, her injuries were serious, but she would recover. But the same could not be said for the intruder in her home. In that struggle, Susan had strangled him to death using just the chokehold. The entire attack had lasted for about 14 to 15 minutes. That's a long time, though, for a fight, you know? It is. And to, like, that's exhausting. Yeah. Like, to be able to keep going that long. Yeah, because, like, even, like, boxers in the rounds, like, the rounds don't last that long. You know, they get a break in between I know. Stuff, you know? And she just had to keep going. Yeah. Also, I think this is notable. Like, we do a lot of cases, or we all have heard a lot of cases, I would say, where people accidentally, quote-unquote, strangled someone, which is not a thing. Where they'll be like, oh, I just barely wrapped my arm around her neck and then she died. Oh, no. Like, it was an oopsie. Whereas in this case, we can see just how hard it is to strangle. Because she's been trained on how to do these chokeholds and stuff. And, like, initially when he turned blue, like, she knows something is going on, right? He's literally blue and purple. And when she let go, of course, he pops right back up. Like, you can't... It takes a long time to strangle someone. And so I just wanted to point that part out that, like... This is an example of someone who had to work really hard for it. Yeah, you don't strangle somebody all the way to death by oopsie. Yeah, like, in this case, though, she didn't want to. She just had to. Oh, yeah. uh, Because of, you know, otherwise he would have killed her. Yeah, I mean, this was a clear case of him or her. Like, Mm -hmm. she didn't have a choice. So, police had a bloody crime scene on their hands and needed to find out what the intruder was doing there. In the days after the murder, Susan quickly got back to her old life, injuries be damned. And she literally went to that nurse's conference. (laughs) She went to it. And I was confused about that because there were people in the news that were trying to interview her. And they, like, had called and she had gone to that nurse's conference. And I was like, girl, that is badass. (laughs) That is determination. Now, she credited her ability, though, to recover to her friends and family supporting her as she went through all of this. And I will say that police pretty much immediately determined this was self-defense. And they were like really excited about this case like they were like you are awesome yay and she did feel terrible we're going to talk about that in a minute she did really feel terrible about having to kill this dude initially police suspected that her attacker must be a burglar surprised by the homeowner in this case susan however they soon uncovered evidence that their suspicions could be wrong and part of this evidence was that susan immediately became suspicious pretty much as soon as she started being attacked she started to think that something is going on here. This is not just a burglary because he's so intent on killing her. So she started asking, you know, while she was in the fight, who sent him because she had her suspicions. Yeah. And in that, like, conversation with her neighbor as they're waiting for the police, she actually told the neighbor that she thought that it was her husband, Mike, that had sent the person, that had sent the intruder. Yeah. Uh, So she immediately, she's already putting this on police's radar. And part of her reasoning, too, is that her home had that alarm system, and the only person who had her code besides herself was Mike. And so, how else would this guy have gotten in unless Mike had at least given him the alarm code? Exactly. She she suspected that Mike had hired this person to kill her, and police started having to ask that question, could Mike have hired a hitman to kill the woman he once promised to spend his life with? When police looked into Susan's suspicions, they discovered something startling. The man lying dead in Susan's home was not a stranger to law enforcement. Police identified the dead man as 59-year-old Edward Dalton Haffey, who went by Ed. 
In addition to dealing with a drug dependency, Hathi had a messy past. According to his background, he had a reputation for murder. For murder. For murder, yes. They played this up and we watched the Who the Bleed Did I Marry about this case because we already liked that show and we thought, why not watch this particular one? And they played it up as like, he was already an established hitman, which is not quite true. But he did have a connection to a murder that is very suspicious that we are going to talk about in just a moment. He had already been to jail for prior crimes, including robbery, burglary, and conspiracy to commit aggravated murder. In that aggravated murder case, he pleaded guilty to arranging the murder, i.e. hiring his own hitman, of 39-year-old Georgia Lee Dutton, who was his ex-girlfriend. Oh, wow. Now, not only did he, like, get connected to this murder, but they found her remains, and he confessed to arranging her murder. Guess how long he went to prison, Aaron? Not that long, I'm guessing. No, just give me a number. What do you think? Uh, four years. Well, it's not that bad. He was supposed to be in jail for 15 years, but he only served nine years. That's not enough years. No, it's not. He arranged a whole murder. What in the heck? Yep. I am shocked and also not shocked. Yeah. Because this kind of crap happens all the time. It makes no sense. Yeah, we've done enough of these cases that we know that. Yeah, there's like people who were just like in the room of the murder who were in jail for life. And then people who did arrange the murder who are out murdering other new people. Yep. It makes no sense. So in this case, um, he's a repeater and he's out there. Or he was. He was out there. (laughs) He's not now. He's not out there now. But he was. And so this is the person that is in her house. And police are like, can we leak him back to Mike? As it turns out, um, yes. (laughs) It was really easy to link him back to Mike. uh, For a couple of reasons. One... Uh, they quickly found out that Ed Haffey worked for Mike at the adult video store. Oh, okay. Yes, he was one of the janitors or slash custodians that worked under Mike, who was his janitorial manager. And so they immediately found that connection, that they had worked together. So that's a red flag. Yep. But also, one of Susan's friends found some great evidence while she was helping clean up the home as a favor to Susan. Shortly after the crime occurred, her friend Helen Boulogne located a suspicious backpack in the home's basement and she knew this didn't belong to her friend she actually called susan about it and after that she immediately called the police so they could take it into evidence she didn't even go through it because she knew this was a smoking gun situation inside the police located a note written in ed's planner because he had a whole planner oh god and inside his planner it said quote call mike get letter unquote on the week of september 4th which was just a couple of days before the attack. Which, if you recall, was on September 6th. Man. Yeah. And along with the scribbled note, he also had Mike's name and phone number. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Furthermore, police were suspicious of Mike for another reason, because this crime had obviously been well reported on, because it's a crazy story. I mean, it's very Mm -hmm. salacious. You have a hitman. He he tries to kill a woman. She murders him. And she's a nurse who's 51 years old at the time of this crime. Or, well, of the attack on her. Like, that's some badass stuff. So the news was, like, losing their shit. Oh, yeah. And Mike is not calling. He's not asking about Susan. He's not even, He's not talking to neighbors, friends, anyone. He's just off, just acting like everything's fine, even though there's no way he wouldn't know that something had happened. Oh, yeah. Like, it's impossible. So at this point, like, police are very 
very suspicious and they are ready to talk to Mike. Now, alarmingly, Mike, you know, he's not around. You know, we knew he was at the beach, but he did live a bit of a trail. At his father's home where he had been living, police found a suspicious note that sounded a lot like a suicide note. So they start to worry that Mike's out there trying to kill himself. And they went into high gear in search of him, determined to get his side of the story. Officers tracked down 58-year-old Michael James Kuhnhausen Sr. to the beach and took him in for questioning on September 14th of 2006. Mike denied having anything to do with the crime. Uh, Of course he did. He's innocent. As you know, he does have that alibi. (laughs) That non-suspicious alibi that he has. (laughs) Right. And even though he's so insistent and so questioning of the cops, uh, his claims of innocence rang hollow because they'd already seen all those red flags. Now, they did ask Mike if he knew Ed, and he did have to say yes. I mean, it's, they're going to find out, right? So they wanted to, I think they wanted to test him to see what he would say. He admits that he knew Ed, but then continued saying that he did not know anything about this crime and that he, he wasn't part of it. But, you know, he was at the house that day. I mean, he, that is true, you know. I mean, he was there, but he wasn't a part of this, of course. You know, I don't know why you think that. <laughs> but he wasn't. He wasn't a part of it. Right, of course um, not. But the police are like, okay, well, you're under arrest because Obviously. we have these, this evidence here. Yeah. So not only do they have all of the other things that I've already told you about, but they knew that Mike had recently been fired. And he needed the money that he would get from inheriting Susan's home if she died before their divorce was finalized. He also had tried to get a former cellmate of Ed Haffey to help with the crime and had gone to a hitman meeting with him. And this former cellmate refused to participate and told police about it. Good for him. And similarly, another man came forward and fingered Mike as the man who tried to hire him to kill his wife. Oh, damn. Yeah, so he went hitman shopping in, like, the worst way possible, mm-hmm. and which is good, though, because people should get caught doing these things. Oh, yeah. So, at this point, they have these witnesses as well. Plus, they had that note in the planner. I mean, this evidence was just piling up against Mike. After his interview, police arrested him, and the district attorney charged him with conspiracy to commit murder and attempted murder. And initially, Mike still pleaded not guilty and planned to fight the charges. The court set his bond at $500,000, but it was later raised to a $2 million bond that was then lowered to a $1 million bond. Yeah. So at the $1 million, he actually got someone to post. Because around New Year's Eve 2006, Mike's daughter Angela paid $100,000, which was 10%, which is what was required, to bail him out. But this set off a firestorm of controversy because Susan was in fear for her life and didn't believe she should be forced into hiding so that he could walk free. And so, essentially, the prosecution started trying to, like, push her in to be kept in jail. And I couldn't find out if he was, like, completely kept in jail. But it sounds like his release is at least delayed because of this. Yeah, which is good. It's unclear why his daughter paid the bond in the first place, though. Because she allegedly admitted to seeing Ed with her father shortly before the attempted hit on Susan. Which you would think would be a red flag. You would think so, yeah. I mean, that's just me. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that would be like a ding, 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 ding. Yeah, I mean, I get having loyalty to your family, but like that has to have a limit. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a, it's kind of suspicious that, yeah. that he was with him. But that's just the situation. Meanwhile, police still had to clear Susan. I mean, it wasn't like a hard situation. It sounds like they were really on her side from the beginning. But they made it clear pretty much immediately that this was self-defense and that she had no choice but to do this. Like, 
if she had not have have strangled this guy, he would have killed her for sure. Yeah. And despite having no other option and being a total badass, Susan didn't really feel that happy about what she had done. I mean, for her, she still took a life, and this was her whole thing as a nurse is to save lives, and she never expected to have to kill someone. And so this was a hard thing for her. And she has said in multiple interviews that she feels like she has a life sentence because it weighs heavily on her heart, and it's just not something that she would ever want to have done. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's got to be a terrible thing. Yeah, although for the rest of us, just completely badass. Like, just a hero... At no point was I like, oh, no. I was just like, get it, girl. Like, I'm just, applause. So so happy to see someone not die yeah. in this situation. Absolutely. Months ticked by with Mike refusing to admit what he did. But soon he changed his mind. In 2007, Mike pleaded guilty to solicitation to commit murder. And as part of his plea, he admitted to offering Ed $50,000 to commit the murder. Police believe that his motive all along was money because he had lost his job. Susan had been the breadwinner and divorce was just going to cost him a comfortable lifestyle. He was going to have to live with his dad and try to get another job. And he just didn't want that. This, if he killed her, he could just take what she had and start his life all in her stuff. That's messed yeah, up. Yeah, I know it's messed up. In exchange for his plea, he received 10 years in prison, which is not that long, but that's the situation. In her victim impact statement, Susan actually said to him, quote, At least if I believed you deserved to die, I'd have had the balls to kill you myself, unquote. <laughs> Which is just amazing. Yeah. Just, just, I can't even. Like, it's like art that, that I'm reading. That is completely badass. It really is. Say. And I feel like we talked about this when we watched it. It's so much more impactful because she has had to kill this person. Yeah. It's like she's capable of it. And like, I mean, I know that she doesn't think of herself that way. And maybe it's, it's like, I'm not trying to like glorify that she had to kill this guy because obviously it sucks. But at the same time, like, screw Mike. Yeah. <laughs> In this scenario, as he's sitting there being sentenced for trying to kill her. I just can't even, like, it's just like the ultimate moment. Yeah. Of like, I won. Like, you did this to me, but I came out on top. And that's just, like, the cherry that goes on top of the sundae, I feel like. That's my opinion. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And we also rewound that part and watched it again. (laughs) Yeah, we did. In his response to his sentencing, Mike said, quote, I heard a lot of people over the last year, and I'm sorry. That's all I can say. I'm sorry. Unquote. One year after Mike went to prison, Susan decided to take more action against him. She sued him in the civil courts for her medical bills, lost wages, and emotional distress. And she won. Unsurprisingly. Yeah. Mike didn't actually attend the trial because he was in prison (laughs) serving his sentence. And at the trial, the jury unanimously voted to award Susan $53,700 for her medical expenses and lost wages sustained after the attack. But that was not all because the jury also voted 11 to 1 to award her money for emotional distress. And for that, they gave her $1 million. $1 million. Yeah. Now, obviously, $1 million is probably not going into her pocket, right? Because it's not like he has a lot of money. That's why he tried to kill her, was to get more money. Yeah. Uh, So, where is she getting this money, right? Well, after the lawsuit, Susan's attorney made it clear that it wasn't so much that she needed the $1 million. It's that Susan feared Mike hiring another hit person to kill her. 
And so, according to the Oregonian, she thought a big financial judgment against him would ensure that he could never get enough money to pay a new hitman. Um, makes sense. It sounds logic. Yeah. So, that was her plan. Like, she was just really worried about him getting money so that he could try to try again. And she didn't know if, if he would even be able to do it from inside jail. Because she knows, like, in jail, he's meeting criminals. He might meet other killers. She started to really worry that he would find someone who was, like, more capable who was willing to take this job. And yeah. so she both feared him having money and just feared in general, like that this could happen again. And because of this, Susan has spent years look, looking over her shoulder and she would even take different routes to work so no one could learn her routines. And she did all kinds of other things to protect herself, just like really going above and beyond uh, trying to like make sure that no one was following her. She would write down license plates that people were very suspicious because she was kind of just i don't want to use the word paranoid because this isn't paranoid when you have a reason to be afraid yeah she was very anxious about this happening again and even though she did stay in her house for a while she like totally lived in her house after this crime occurred which i thought was badass and she only moved when it was like her time like on her schedule to move and when she moved she did other protective things like she put gravel around her house so that you would crunch so if anyone tries to walk up to her house, you hear crunch, 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 crunch. Yeah. And she also has surveillance cameras around her home now. So that if someone does try to come up again, she has cameras. And she also has a new alarm system that's more secure. So she's done like all this stuff to try to keep herself safe. Now, as I said before, police and the community and basically everyone has hailed Susan as a hero even though she has struggled with having to kill this man, even though it's, you know, the only option she had. But even though she was struggling, it did not stop the public from celebrating her actions. And in fact, the Portland Police Bureau even honored her for her amazing actions. And Susan was one of 85 people honored in a ceremony held in January 2008, where she received a Civilian Medal of Heroism for her actions to save her life, which is awesome. That is awesome. Since this incident, Susan's story has been shared worldwide as an inspiring tale of bravery and determination. And at the same time, that narrative ignores the daily battles that Susan fights to feel safe in this world. Despite receiving 10 years, Mike wouldn't serve his entire sentence. In June 2014, Mike Kuhnhausen died at Snake River Correctional Institution in Ontario, Oregon. For some time, he'd been battling prostate cancer that had unfortunately metastasized and spread to his bones. He was 65 years old at the time of his death. After his death, Susan talked to the Oregonian. She said about him, quote, I don't mourn his passing. Instead, I mourn the life he could have had. If only he could have opened his heart for those of us who cared about him, unquote. Before his death, Mike was coming up for parole soon, and he died in June 2014, but was scheduled to be released for good behavior in September 2014. So he literally missed his release by like three months. Wow. Now, for Susan, though, that time leading up to the release was super scary. You know, she had kind of tried to like threat-proof her life, basically, but still it was scary. She was having to also deal with all kinds of like parole dates and stuff like that. It was very stressful. So as part of that, she started working with politicians to try to create like a website where crime victims could go to make it easier for them to keep track of all the stuff with the prisoner that, you know, is related to that, like is connected to them and like when all their parole dates and when they might be released and that kind of stuff so that they wouldn't have to keep checking with all these different, you know, places 
to keep up with all the information related to the person who harmed them. So she started working on that with, you know, with politicians and stuff so that the state of Oregon would at least have that. She also gave back to the community. As part of giving back to the community, she does donational speeches. She counsels other victims. She works with, as a victim's advocate. She even helps teach self-defense so that other women and girls can protect themselves. And I think what we've learned from Susan's story is that she is a badass. Yes, Susan is. Walters is a badass. She's also hilarious. Her interview on Who the Believe Did I Marry is one of the funniest ones that I've seen. And she's just like a really commanding presence and just amazing. Yep. She's currently my personal hero uh, for this. Just amazing. Now, I know that some of you have heard this story, but I hope that we brought you some new details. That was my goal. Uh, hopefully you did ha- take something different from this episode. I decided to do some survivor stories while I cope for the few months of grief that I'm having with my mother passing. And we're not doing a bunch of them. But we haven't really done any survivor stories aside from there was a kidnapping story that we did. I don't think that we've done any other survivor stories. No, that's a lie. We did the one where the lady killed uh, the serial killer. Yep, that's right. And when he was trying to murder her. So we have done at least two, I guess, survivor stories. But we haven't done as many, and I, I just felt like it wouldn't be harmful, right, to do a couple. So I think next week we're going to do another survival story. It's a fun way to shake up the new year, kind of inspirational and less, like, just sad. Yeah. And then we'll probably be back to our regularly scheduled horrible crimes <laughs> in February, depending on where my mental health is and, like, what kind of case I can find that's not too triggering. I uh, have had a few cases be more triggering right now. Uh, which has been difficult for me um, lately. But, I mean, I don't want to, like, miss all of you because I I definitely missed our Bad Axe listeners and our patron supporters. So I, I, I definitely want to see you back on schedule. So hopefully, even with my my sads and, like, it's been a lot of, a lot of up and down, I, I've not experienced anything like this. Like, my grandparents are mostly passed away. I only have one grandparent left. And I was really close with my mom all. So, like, I obviously that was really sad when she passed. But it wasn't like this. Like, losing my mom has been especially traumatic. It's like every single thing in my life is different. And it's kind of hard to explain it. I keep trying to tell people that. But it's like every single thing that in my entire life has shifted. And, like, every memory that I have is different. And it's weird. It's I don't know. It's, it's just weird. So, I don't know if anyone out there has experienced this. But... It's, it's incredibly traumatic and like it was such a shock like we weren't expecting it like she hadn't been terminally ill or anything she had had pneumonia we did not know that she had thought she had her asthma acting up and she had been to the doctor and had gotten like more asthma medications and so she knew she had been having less good breathing times but it wasn't and she didn't have covid or you know something that would have been, been noticeable like a terminal illness like there wasn't anything that would have given us any kind of inkling that she would pass away. And in fact, the last thing she said to me is I had just gotten tested positive for COVID during like a routine test because we were supposed to go on a trip for my birthday. And so we were getting like a preemptive COVID test a couple of days before we were set to leave just to make sure that we weren't COVID positive. And mine happened to be positive and we were able to trace back that I had been exposed at, I do murder mystery shows for my job or for one of my jobs. And I had been exposed at a show and like I was able to confirm that with the, with one of the people at the party. And so, like, I had been sick for some time and just not realized it. And, like, you know, during the holiday time, 
because of, because you know I didn't have a lot as many symptoms as last time. I I didn't really wasn't that bad. Anyway, apparently I'm telling everyone about this, but long story short, and we didn't have any reason to suspect that my mom might pass away. So it's just been like really shocking, and I I still am having trouble even digesting that has happened. And I'm like trying to text her and stuff, and I, obviously I can't. And it's just been it's been really hard. So I'm kind of a mess, and I just I'm just want to be honest. So hopefully. Like, I'm, I don't want anything to, like, affect the quality of the podcast. And I want to make sure that we're bringing, like, good stuff for all of you. I think that it'll be okay to, like, to be on our regular schedule. But I just wanted to kind of be open with everyone. If you do notice something a little different, it might just be that. It's just been... it's I'm not really my full, brightest self right now. I'm, like, weird, new, weepy Danielle. <laughs> and I've been having to tell people this, like that I'm meeting for the first time just what's up because I'm just not myself at all. And I just don't want people to think this is how I am all the time. But it's been it's been pretty rough. I mean I feel like I'm I've done my best, but it's just like not something that I ever expected to be dealing with right now. It's just been like really hard. And then I have been dealing with some health problems, so it's like yeah. It's like hard not to have her there. Yeah. Well, that is what's been going on. So thank you for listening. Thank you for hanging in there. I know it was like a little bit long for a hiatus. Um, If you do want more Bad Axe, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash Bad Pod. There's a link in our show notes. And we would appreciate the support. It helps us keep going. Honestly, I feel like it would be, I would have been like less inclined to come back this fast had we not have such amazing patrons. But it really does, like, make you want to keep going, even whenever there's, like, a setback. Uh, just knowing that there's people out there that are supporting you and the people that are out there that really care and they really want to listen. So it, I really do appreciate that. You can also, like, rate and review us. I know that we have, like, I think we have 40 last time I checked. There's a couple people that um, are not really down to bad acts. If someone really hates Aaron on the, on the feedback, um, even though he's amazing. I don't know why they hate him. But if you want to leave us a positive feedback, that would be really great. Like, some five stars would be amazing. Also, you can follow us on social media. Our social media has been very quiet lately, but I'm about to start reposting again. I post mostly on Instagram, so you can join us there. If you have questions or feedback or suggestions, you can email them to us at badaxpod at gmail.com. And just while we're on the survivor thing, if you have like a really awesome story that ends with like a survival, aside from like the really big ones, like I don't want to do Mary Vincent because I feel like that one's been done even more than Susan. Like I've heard that one like so many times. I don't want to do one that's that like popular. But if you have one that's less popular, you can shoot it my way and I'll look at it. And maybe that would be a good fit for like slightly less uh, weepy episodes. Like, I'm not trying to change the format. I'm worried people are going to be listening like, oh, no, she's changing the format. I swear I'm not. It's just that and this, like, right now, <laughs> it's, like, really raw for me. And some things are hard. Like, I've had to turn off some stuff. And just it's just been hard. So if you have something that's a little bit more positive, that'd be great. Uh, also, we have a website. Aaron, do you want to tell them? Uh, BadXPod.com, guys. Go check it out. Yes. Check out the website. We have two, technically. So they're there for you. And we will have some great new stuff for next week. I already have the case picked out, and it's I think it's good. 
And I also have some Patreon. We haven't posted them yet, but we have several amazing Patreon episodes coming out this month. And uh, there's a lot of Survivor stuff, but there's also some, like, I feel like it's a lot like this. Like, there's still a heavy crime component. Like, it's not, it's not, like, I don't know, like, a less, like, interesting case. It's, like, still, like, really there. Still, like, the content is still really there. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. It's compelling. You'll be interested. They're going to be good cases. They're going to be good. All right. Well, we'll see you very soon. Have amazing weeks. I hope your 2022 is off to a better start than mine. And ideally, we're going to just pull through. We're going to band together. And this year, we're going to fucking... I'm sorry. I said people don't like it when I say fucking sometimes. But we're going to fucking do this. And it's going to be... We're going to make it better. I don't know how. Right now, it looks very dark. But by the end of this year... We're going to make it. We're going to make it better. Yeah, Somehow. I don't know how yet. But we're going to follow Susan's example. And we're going we're gonna to power through. There you go. We're going to power through. All right. Well, we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.